Lord, this morning we surrender to you completely and fully because we consider what you've done for us. We consider who you are. We consider your grace and mercy. And in view of your mercy, God, we can't help but want to offer our lives to you as living, living sacrifices. We can't help but declare that you have bought us with a price. And so, God, we know we are not our own anymore. We belong, both body and soul, to our faithful creator and faithful savior, Jesus Christ. God, we confess together this morning that, that we want to live for you. We want our whole selves to be swallowed up for your glory. But God, we also confess this morning our weakness. Lord, amidst sometimes our best intentions, amidst our best desires, God, we know there are, there are mixed desires in us. We have divided hearts. We're drawn away from your glory, drawn away from a full devotion to you. And so we're here this morning as needy people. We're here as people who need you to reorder our hearts, reorder our lives, to set our minds again on the things that are above, not on the things that are of this earth. Lord, to pursue again, to seek Christ who is seated with you at the right hand, rather than to be consumed with the things that are passing away in this earth. But Lord, we need you. We need your word. We need your grace. We need your spirit. And so as needy beggars this morning, we ask that you would meet us here. Pour out your power and grace among us. Speak to us with clarity, with conviction. God, and we pray that you would give us the hearts to hear, the hearts to be soft enough to be open to your voice. Lord, now we, again, just join together. We are yours. We belong to you. Take us. Do with us whatever you will for the honor and glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking a seat, uh, first of all, of our kiddos have been checked in this morning. They can head to the, the back. Uh, if there's any kids that haven't had a chance to check in, uh, you can do that now. And I want to invite you all to open your Bible to Colossians for the last time. Uh, for the last time we opened the book of Colossians. Hopefully not the last time in our lives, but uh, for the last time as a church going through this Colossians series. Today we're going to cover Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 18. We're going to read that together, and then we'll unpack it uh, together. So this is Colossians 4, 2 through 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. 
Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, as we've been working through this letter to the Colossians, uh, if you've been tracking with us, we remember that the, the very, very first sort of half of Colossians was all about clarifying and defending the gospel. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? And how can we remain faithful to this gospel message? Uh, the second half, starting with chapter 3, we got to see what kind of people are created by this gospel. Like when the gospel intersects with our lives, when the gospel comes down into our hearts, what kind of person does it create? Or, or maybe even broader than that, what kind of social community does it create? When the gospel lands on our hearts. But we turn now in, at the end of um, Colossians, and Paul transitions to talk about not, not just clarifying and defending the gospel, not just what kind of people the gospel creates, but here he, he talks about what it looks like for us to be good stewards of the gospel. In other words, the gospel doesn't just save us, but the gospel is something that is given to us. It is something that God entrusts to us that is precious, that we must learn how to take care of. Uh, over the last few years since having kids, we pretty much relied on, my, on, on our parents for uh, watching the kids whenever we need a babysitter. Uh, but listen, I, you know, I'm sure there's, there's families, I'm sure there's parents out there when they get a babysitter, they're the kind of people that are just so ready to, to get out the door, they just sort of throw the baby at, at the, the, the babysitter and run out the door and get in the car and, and take off. Uh, but that is not how it goes down in our house. Uh, we are sort of overly prepared for everything that could possibly happen. You know, so when we're giving people the rundown, it's like, hey, let me tell you what happened today. Let me tell you what's changed since the last time. Let me tell you, you know, what kind of uh, attitude the, the child has had today. Let me tell you what they need to eat. Let me tell you what time they need to go to bed. Here's all the activities that I expect them to do and not to do. Here's what you can do if there is a problem, you, you know, how to contact us. I mean, we like to check all the boxes for uh, handing our kids off to somebody else. Now, you, you might think maybe that's, you know, going a little overboard. But at the end of the day, these are our kids we're talking about. They belong to us. We are the ones responsible for keeping them healthy, for keeping them alive. And we're just allowing someone else a few hours with them to, to enjoy you know, our, our children. And so we expect that with something that precious, with something that near and dear to us, we're not just going to leave it up to chance for what happens with our kids. We want to know that whoever we leave our kids with, they're going to treat our kids the way we want them to be treated. They're going to do the things with our kids that we want them to do. They're going to love our kids like we love our kids. So as Paul gets to the end of this letter, uh, this is basically the point he's trying to make. He's saying, you and I have been entrusted with the gospel. That the gospel, yes, it belongs to God. It is his good news. It is his message to the world. But in his goodness, God has invited us into his plan for the world. And he has entrusted us with this precious good news of Jesus Christ. And with something so precious, God isn't just going to leave us to figure out how we should handle the gospel, right? God is not like a parent who just sort of throws the gospel at us, runs out the door and says, good luck. I hope you figure it out. No, God 
is, is in, in our passage this morning, God is going to give us clear instructions for how it is that we steward the gospel well. He's going to show us some examples of what it looks like to steward the gospel well. But I think more than anything, God's going to remind us that even though he has entrusted us with the gospel, he is with us moment by moment, pouring out his power and his grace to help us along the way. So this morning, we're going to look at five things that God calls us to in order to be good stewards of the gospel. That if we've been given something so precious, so important, what does it look like for us to steward that well? Five, five things. First, we are called to pray. We are called to pray. Uh, we're going to read back through the, the passage and just kind of unpack it. Verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So initially, Paul tells us how to pray. He's saying that our prayers shouldn't be scarce, but rather our prayers should be steady, that we should be having an ongoing dialogue with the Lord. Now, I know anytime we bring up prayer, it's easy for us all to feel convicted. I've never met anybody who was thrilled about their prayer life, thrilled about how much time they spend in prayer. I've never met anybody like that. And so what we have to understand is Paul's not just whacking us over the head uh, with one more thing to add to our busy lives. What Paul understands is just how needy we really are. Paul understands that every single thing we have in our life, it comes from God. That if we are going to enjoy anything in this life, we must seek it from the Father in heaven who pours out his goodness down upon us. And so he encourages us to, to seek God steadfastly because we are always needy. And then Paul uh, calls us to be watchful in our prayers. I think this watchfulness has a couple dimensions to it. First of all, we have to be watchful because we have to know what the needs are that we ought to be praying for. And then on the back end, we have to be watchful to know how God's answering those prayers so that, that we can praise him and thank him when he actually does answer. Uh, as we've been singing this morning, I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered. And when we see those answers, we remain watchful and then we give thanks. But I think knowing who we are, living in the distracted age that you and I live in, what it means for us to be watchful in our prayers is to even be watchful over the, the distractions in our own hearts. Uh, what this looks like for me, I've learned about myself, for example. I can't have an enjoyable, effective prayer life uh, while laying in my bed. Like, I, I don't know what it is. I just, I'm the kind of person, if I lay down in two or three minutes, I'm going to be knocked out. And so I can't uh, have a watchful prayer life if I pray when I'm laying down. Uh, another thing I've learned about myself is, honestly, I, I can't really even pray usually when I'm inside, and here's why. In almost every single room that I'm ever in, there is a computer screen, a TV, or an iPhone, and those things just have a way of pulling my attention away from prayer. And so for me, what it, what it looks like to have a watchful prayer life is actually to get outside. I leave my phone behind, I get outside, I take walks, and I almost imagine as if I'm taking a walk with a friend or taking a walk with my wife and having a conversation. I'm able to, to walk with the Lord. And for me, that's helpful in being watchful in my, in my prayer life. But here's the deal. What I'm not trying to do is tell you that we all have to be watchful over our hearts in the same way. What I am trying to say is you need to know yourself. Know your own heart. Know what is distracting to you. You, you might be the kind of person, the best place for you to pray is maybe on your bed. I, I don't know. You might get totally, if you start walking outside trying to pray, you might get totally distracted by all the cars and everything that's going on. I don't know. The point is we have to know ourselves. And we have to set ourselves up so that we're not distracted, but rather we can be watchful. And then we shouldn't be surprised at all that Paul adds, and when he talks about how we should pray, he adds thanksgiving. That, that if everything we have comes from God, if God has blessed us with so much, then our whole lives and our, all of our prayers ought to be laced with, with thanksgiving. Um, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm kind of thinking as we get to the end of this year, 
You know, I just personally want to be really vigilant about repenting of any grumbling and complaining. You know, you know knowing who God is, knowing, knowing, knowing uh, all that he's done for me, I'm just, I'm just tired of being so grumpy. I'm just tired of seeing the glass half empty. And I would love it. Man, how cool would it be if we all just sort of hit 2024 having repented of all our complaining and grumbling and grumpiness and we just hit 2024 brimming with gratitude over all that God has done for us. What an, I think it would be the best year of our lives. So it's important how we pray, but it's also important what we pray for. Remember, we've been entrusted with a stewardship. We have been entrusted with the gospel. And so that reorients our priorities. Uh, th- this happened to me a number of times. You know, every so often, uh, it'll be like cl- close to dinner time, and all of a sudden at the house, we'll realize we don't have some really important ingredient for dinner. And so Allie will ask me to run to the grocery store to get milk or, you know, something like that. And I'll, I'll run out of the car. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there and get back as fast as I can because I'm, so, I'm hungry and I want to show my wife I can do it. And so I get in the car and I drive as fast as I can, you know, to the grocery store. And, you know, I'm running, I'm, I'm focused. And all of a sudden, off to the right, there's a sale and something catches my attention. And, and I go over and I'm like, wow, not, not only is this on sale, but, you know, this is something Allie likes. This is something she's going to be so happy about. You know, if I, if I get this, she, I mean, I'm just going to surprise her. It's going to be so great. So I run over to the cash register, and I run back in my car, drive home, walk through the door. I'm so excited. I've got this thing that I know she's going to love. And, and she looks at me, and she says, where's the milk? <laughs> and I realized that even though maybe it was a good thing that I brought some other thing home, I missed what was important for that moment. I missed what was important based on the time, the season, the moment that I found myself in. What we needed in that moment was milk. And so maybe this other thing was good, but it, but it wasn't the most important thing. And I think so many times this is what happens in our prayer lives. It's, it's not that we shouldn't be praying about everything. We absolutely should. We should be lifting up all of our needs in, our, in life to the Lord. But we only have a limited amount of time. And this passage is, is trying to show us there actually is a priority in, in our prayer lives. The kinds of things that we're praying for ought to be the kinds of things that are shaped by the Word of God. And so here, Paul's going to show us two priorities. These, knowing that this is the time in the season of history that we live in, here are two things that should always be priorities in our prayer life. First, let's read verses 3 and 4. Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So the first major thing, the first major priority in our prayer lives is that the word would go out. That the word would go out. Listen, guys, Paul's Paul's in prison. You expect a person in prison to want to pray, to want to ask for prayer. What's surprising about this passage, though, is what Paul asks for prayer for. Here's the guy in prison. He reaches out to his Christian friends, and he's not asking them to pray that he would get let out of prison. He's not asking them to pray that he would stay healthy while he's in prison. He's not asking them to pray that the people who have falsely condemned him would be brought to justice by God. That's not what he's praying. Why? Because Paul knows he has become a steward of the gospel. He's been entrusted with something so much deeper, something so much more eternal And so when he asks for prayer, his priority is, if I'm a steward of the gospel, then my priority is that the word would go out. And then he shows us another priority that should always be at the top of our our prayer list during this season, during this moment of history that we find ourselves in. Uh, We're going to jump down to verses 12 and 13 and see how Paul shows us the example of Epaphras. 
verses 12 and 13 say, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. This guy's praying hard. This guy loves these people, and he's lifting them up in prayers day after day after day. But what is he praying? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So these are the two top priorities, that the word would go out, that the word would go out, and that the church would grow up. That the word would go out, and that the church would grow up, knowing the time and the season that we live in. There, there's never anything that is wrong to pray about. There's never anything that is wrong for us to go to the Lord about. But we have to be cautious about our, our prayers being imbalanced. We have to be cautious about going to the store, and what's needed is milk and coming home with bread instead. What's needed in this moment, the top priorities, Paul's saying, is for the word to go out and for the church to grow up. And here's what the call to prayer combats. The call to prayer combats a self-sufficient church. See, a church like ours, I mean, we're looking for strength. We're looking for power. We're looking for movement and growth. And if we're not seeking it from the Lord, then we will end up seeking it from somewhere else. And when we begin to seek power, strength, energy from somewhere else other than the Lord, inevitably, we will crumble. We will crash. And so this this call to pray, it combats a self-sufficient church. If the word is going to go out, it's only going to go out by the power of God. And if the church is going to grow up, it's only going to grow up by the grace of God. We are totally dependent upon him. Um, here's just a, maybe a helpful uh, application of this. If you're a family and, and you're kind of trying to build prayer habits into your daily life as a family, um, you, the only times you, you might pray might be at dinner time or, or a meal or something like that, or maybe it's bedtime or, or something like that. I would encourage you, maybe consider trying to keep these top priorities as a part of your daily prayer times as a family. Maybe get a sticky note or some, some uh, note card or something and put it somewhere in, on your um, you know, refrigerator or in your kid's bedroom. And, and just these two simple phrases, for the word to go out and the church to grow up and, and make that a regular routine as a part of your family prayer life together. So in order to be good stewards of the gospel, God, ca- God calls us to pray. Second, this morning, second, we are called to witness. We are called to witness. Verses 5 and 6 say, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Sadly, sadly, many people are turned away from the church and away from Jesus because of the foolishness of Christians. And so Paul's, he's trying to help us grow up. He's trying to help us understand the season of history that we live in. While we have this moment, this opportunity to engage with outsiders, and what he means by that is non-Christians, non-believers, people who haven't been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, when we engage with those people, Paul's saying, be wise, be thoughtful, be careful how you engage, what values you project, how you interact with these people. But to be very clear, verse 6 shows us that it isn't just our actions, it isn't just our way of life, it isn't just our interactions that Paul's after. Paul's assuming, Paul's assuming that every Christian, every person who has received Jesus, every person that the gospel has penetrated their heart and brought them from death to life, 
He's assuming that they will be talking to outsiders about God's grace, about the gospel. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So here's the picture that Paul gives us. He gives us a picture of food seasoned with salt. Um, I, I don't know how you are with food. Uh, I, I'm a big salt lover. You know, if I was the kind of person that for the rest of my life I had to either pick sugar or salt, I would be definitely salt all day long. Like that, I would definitely be in that camp. I'm, I'm a salt guy. Uh, you know, it's, it's crazy to me that you can take two things, like two pieces of meat, two steaks, and these steaks are from the same cow, they're from the same uh, market, they get cooked for the same amount of time at the same exact temperature, but if one has been seasoned and has the, just the right amount of salt on it and the other one has nothing on it, that, that one that has that, that seasoned salt on it, man, that is the delight of life. I mean, that is where life comes alive when you eat that salty steak. But if the other one hasn't been seasoned at all, doesn't have any salt on it, honestly, you take a couple bites and you think, you know, I'm not even sure that I want this. I'm not sure that I even want to waste the stomach space on this piece of meat that, that doesn't have seasoning on it. And Paul wants us to consider our conversations with unbelievers in the same kind of way. Is there anything in our talk, in our speech, in our conversations with non-believers that elevates it above what they're hearing all day long from everybody else? Is there anything in our conversations, in our talk, in our speech with these non-believers that would give them good news, that would declare to them something they could not hear from anywhere else? that would rise the conversation above sports or politics or the same old average everyday bland stuff that everybody talks about because they don't know what else to talk about? Is there anything else that would elevate, that would insert something unique, something different, something flavorful into our conversations? I don't think that what Paul's advocating for is that every single thing that we ever talk about with a non-believer is the gospel. I don't think that's what he's saying. But I think he is saying, look for opportunities to season your talk, season your speech, season your interactions with, with non-believers with the grace of God. And so there's really only two things um, that, are, that are mainly important for being faithful and sharing the gospel and being faithful and witnessing. There's two, there's two major things. First, we have to get really, really clear on what the gospel is. That's the most important thing. We've got to get really clear. What is it that I'm supposed to say? <laughs> what is it that I'm supposed to tell somebody else? So we've got to get clear on the gospel. And then here's the other thing. We actually have to season our own hearts with the gospel so that we're excited to share it. So let's, go, let's take these one at a time. First, getting really clear on what the gospel is. Really clear on what the gospel is. The good news of Jesus Christ is not the call to love our neighbors. That is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is not deciding that I'm going to live a sincere and good life in order to honor God. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not determining that I am a bad person, and so I'm going to start living a better life now in order to try to be a good person. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not anything that we do in our performance. It's not any religious duties that we add on top of our lives. The gospel is not anything to do with what we do. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came into this world to live the perfect life that you and I could not live. 
that he died the death that you and I deserved. He died as a substitute in our place for our sins. And then Jesus Christ rose from the dead to conquer all of our worst enemies. That is good news. That is the gospel. What we've been entrusted with, what we are being called to be good stewards of, it's not anything about us. It's not our life. It's not our decisions. It's not us going out and trying to tell people how to make a better use of their life. That is not what we are called fundamentally to declare. What we've been entrusted with is good news about Jesus, good news about what he has done, good news that God saves sinners. So the first thing we have to do if we're going to share the gospel is we've got to get really clear on what the gospel is. But the other thing is just as important, and it's that our hearts must be seasoned daily with this gospel so that we're actually excited to share it. You see, talking about witnessing, it's a lot like talking about prayer. You know, I've never really met anybody that was just absolutely thrilled about their, their witnessing. You know, it's like, how, how much prayer? You know, how, how much witnessing? How many times do I have to share Jesus? I, I don't think that's the point. I think Paul's point is when, when it actually hits us, what God has done, when it actually sinks into our hearts that Jesus Christ saves sinners, when it sinks in that God has given us the privilege of stewarding the gospel, then we get excited. We get excited to talk to other people about it. We step up out of the mundane, out of the bland, out of the ordinary everyday stuff that everybody else talks about, and we step up into our calling, into the nobility and dignity of being ambassadors for Jesus. Not because we're trying to tick boxes, not because we're keeping count of tally marks of how many conversations we had about the gospel, but just because we're excited about it. We're thankful, and we just want to talk to other people about the grace of God. We learn what it means to answer other people. And what this calling combats is what we might call an insulated church. An insulated church. You know, the church is a great place. It's a place where we find safety. It's a, it's a place where we find encouragement. It's a place where we have our needs met. It's not wrong to think about the church that way. But if a church turns inward and it only ever thinks about itself and it only ever thinks about what's in it for us and it only ever thinks about how to create a good life for me and it stops thinking about the outsider, it stops thinking about engaging the lost world, eventually a church that is insulated will die. Jesus has called us to have this outward focus, to have our eye set on the outsider, as Paul says here, to learn what it means to walk in wisdom towards them and to learn what it means to season our conversations with salt. And I just want to say that I think particularly for us here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, we have been given an unbelievable opportunity. You know, you live here, there are so many people here who need Jesus. And there are so many people moving here who need Jesus. So we've got two options, right? We can either kind of grumble and complain that things are changing, that all these people from the north are coming down here and changing our life and making everything crazy for us. Or, or we can step into this opportunity that God has given us. We can step into the fact that everywhere we look, everywhere we go, there are desperate, hurting, broken people who are longing to know the grace of God. Let's press in. Let's press into this opportunity. Let's press in to throwing ourselves completely upon Jesus, to depend upon him fully, to do what we can't do in our own strength, to share Christ. Let's season our own hearts with his grace so that we're excited. We're excited to talk to other people about it. 
So in order to be good stewards of the gospel, God calls us to witness. Third, this morning, we are called to be faithful. We are called to be faithful. We're going to read verses 7 through 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul's discussing these two messengers that he sent uh, to them. By the way, you know, they, they're not living in the 21st century. If Paul wants to get a message from prison over to some uh, people in Colossae, uh, you know, he can't send a text message, can't send an email, can't send a letter by mail. You know, he's got to send a, a real person. And when Paul describes these two men, uh, he, he mentions a number of things, but the two things that kind of jump off the page to me are that he, he calls both of them faithful. He calls both of them faithful. And if we're going to be effective in our stewardship of the gospel, we are called to be faithful as well. You know, you think about what it is that marks this current generation, like what it is that kind of marks life in America in the 21st century. I think a lot of people would probably agree that distraction is one of those things that's high up on the list, one of those things that's kind of marks all of our lives. But I think one of the other things that's probably really high up the list for people in this generation who live in the United States at this time in history is flakiness. We have a really hard time committing to anything. We just move around from people to jobs to churches to marriages. We bounce around because we're afraid of commitment. This generation is not marked by faithfulness. It's marked by flakiness. You know, we do that thing where when someone asks us to, to come and, and do something, our, our natural sort of gut response is maybe we, we might be able to make it. And why do we say that? I mean, it's because if I end up having something better come along, if, if all of a sudden I'm sitting on my couch and it's really cozy and I just don't want to get out anymore, then if I've said maybe, if I've said we might make it, then if we don't show up, I'm not, I'm not breaking my word. I'm not breaking my promise anymore, right? We sort of invented this third category of I might be somewhere. We send a quick text message, you know, with a little excuse. Sorry, God, sorry, something came up and half the time it's a lie. So flakiness uh, marks our age, and we have to get honest about that. What does that mean for the gospel? What does that mean for our commitment to Christ? If we've been seeped in this atmosphere of moving on when something better comes along, what does that mean for us? Well, let's go back uh, where we started this morning. I want you to imagine that Allie and I were out on a date. We've gotten a babysitter, and the babysitter's there uh, with our kids, and about an hour into the dinner, uh, the phone rings for the second time. And so, you know, we pick it up and uh, the babysitter says, look, guys, I'm, I'm so thankful for this opportunity. Thank you for letting me come and spend some time with your kids tonight. I mean, your kids are just great. I just love, you know, I just love being your kids. But here's the deal. One of my friends just called me and there's this new movie and they want to take me and they're going to pay for my movie ticket and they're going to pay for my popcorn and snacks and stuff like that. And so I know you guys are probably coming home in 20 or 30 minutes. Your kids are pretty good. So I just locked the door, left with my friend and it's no big deal. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be okay. That is the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard in your life. No one would ever do that. I hope no one would ever do that. But so many times, we've been entrusted with this gospel. We've been entrusted with the mission of Jesus. But then something shinier comes along, something a little more comfortable comes along. How quick are we to walk away from the mission of Jesus for something else? 
to walk away from what we've been entrusted with. That is so precious. That is so valuable. That has eternal significance. How often do we walk away because we've been steeped in this flakiness? And here's what I think has gone wrong. Something we've misunderstood about faithfulness. See, when the Bible talks about faithfulness, the Bible actually calls faithfulness a fruit of the Spirit. What that means is that faithfulness is not natural. Faithfulness is not something that comes natural to us in our sinfulness. That faithfulness is actually something supernatural. Faithfulness is actually only possible when the Spirit of God is working in us, bearing fruit. Is that how we think of faithfulness? Do we think of it as just, you know, well, that person grew up and they lived a disciplined life or they were in the military or they had a good job and so, you know, they're a real faithful God. No, no, no. The Word of God teaches us that this kind of faithfulness, like what Paul's talking about, where he's rotting in prison for the sake of Jesus, this kind of faithfulness that's, that's not in it for the kickback, that's not in it just when times are good, the kind of faithfulness that is committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ even when it is inconvenient, that kind of faithfulness can only come by the Spirit of God. It only comes into our life by the power of God. It's not something that we just reach down in and find within ourselves. We are so utterly dependent. And in an age like ours, where it is just so easy to be flaky, we have even more reason to pray steadfastly, earnestly for God's mercy and His grace that rather than being a church that is marked by flakiness, we would be a church marked by faithfulness. You know, I tell you what, I, I feel like faithfulness might just be one of those things that would just shine like a spotlight across a landscape of our world that is so that doesn't even know what faithfulness means anymore. And so for us to remain committed, for us to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is quite the opportunity for us. If we're going to be faithful to the gospel, it's not going to be because of what comes from man. It's only going to be because of what comes from God. But here we are. This is the call. This is what God has entrusted us with. So if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to be good stewards, we have to be faithful. Fourth this morning, we are called to work together. We are called to work together. Verses 10 and 11 say, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. They are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So here's what we learn about Paul. Paul, sometimes we look at Paul and we, we think of him as sort of this superhero, this guy who's larger than life. But here, the apostle Paul, he's not only asking for prayer, he's showing us that he was no lone ranger. Paul knew that he had fellow workers in his calling. Paul knew that he needed other people to come alongside of him, like he says here, to comfort him. Paul did not think that he was above needing help from the other Christians in his life. But so many times what happens to us is we get prideful and we think, I can handle it on my own, and so we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ. And we go about trying to live out this Christian life on our own. But the weight of what we've been called to, the weight of this mission, it's too large for any of us. We all need people praying for us. We all need people holding us accountable. 
We all need people who we can confess our sins to and then hear them remind us of the gospel again. We all, if our hearts are going to be seasoned with the grace of God, we need to embed ourselves in a community where we're reminding each other of the gospel on a regular basis. We cannot do this without each other. I talked to a good friend recently about a mistake he made when he was trying to help somebody move. Uh, this guy, you know, he's, he works out. He's just CrossFit. You know, he's kind of, you know, big, big, big buff guy. And uh, he, he shows up to where he's supposed to help. And there's a couch on the back of a truck. And, you know, he knows he's supposed to help move this couch. But the other people aren't there. He's got somewhere to be. And so he thinks, you know, I'm a big, strong guy. And I'm just going to move this couch all by myself. And so he wrangles with that couch. And, and he finally does it. He does it by himself. You know, so, you know he, it was some hard work. But he was able to, to get it done. But here's the problem. A couple days later, he started to feel something kind of funny going on. And he realized that even though in the moment he had been able to accomplish it, he had injured himself. Come to find out he has a hernia, and he's probably going to have to get surgery soon. So here's the deal. Sometimes you and I, we have the best of intentions. You know, we're just trying to save the world. We're trying to help Jesus. We're trying to serve his kingdom. But we jump out there in our pride, and we try to do it on our own. We try to do it without depending upon the other people that God's placed in our life. And eventually, because of the weight of this mission, because of the weight of this task, it will eventually break us. It will eventually crush us. And so this is why, for example, here as a church, as a corporate body, we partner up with other churches for the sake of the mission of Christ, both here in our area and all over the world. We partner with other churches because we aren't so prideful to think that we're the only church that can do this. And we also partner with other ministries. There's sort of a line in our, in our partnerships. As long as someone is aligned in the gospel of Jesus Christ with us, we want to partner with them. We want to come alongside and create that kind of a partnership. But it's not just a corporate thing. It's not just what we do as a church. We also have to think about this on an individual level as well. I want you to know some, notice something in verse 11. Notice that Paul says, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Now, there's a couple of reasons why Paul might have brought up the circumcision here. But at least one of the things that it shows us is this. By bringing out the ethnic diversity, it casts light back upon unity in Christ. By reminding us that initially, the people who are working together for the sake of the gospel, they actually don't come from the same background. They actually don't have the natural affinity of life that connects us all. It, it throws light back upon the fact that what unites us in the church is Jesus Christ alone. Earlier in chapter 3, um, this isn't, I don't think this is necessarily the fundamental main point of Colossians, but it is my favorite verse after going through it together as a church. When I think about our church, when I think about what we're pursuing together, chapter 3, verse 11 is my favorite verse Paul says here, he's talking about in this church, in this kingdom of Christ, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. See, if Christ is all and in all, then our unity together is not based on any of those external things. It's not based off of our ethnic identity. It's not based off of our upbringing. It's not based off of our skin color. Our unity is based upon Jesus Christ alone. And that means that when we look out and we try to figure out, okay, who, who am I depending upon? Who am I depending upon? Who do I work with? Who are the people that God's placed in my life to work together for the sake of the gospel? Let me tell you, they're the people that are here. Who's here? 
Who is here? Not the people that are like me, not the people that I get along with, not the people who sort of cheer for the same football team as me. Who is here? And whoever is here, they are with me in this work together. Listen, um, I'm going to be frank for a minute. Palmetto Shores Church, man, I love this church. So thrilled about what God is doing here. If what we're looking for, if what you can't, I don't know how long you've been around here, but if, you're, if what you're looking for in this church is to kind of find a bunch of people who are just like you and find a bunch of people who have the same background and kind of have the same experience, the same education, kind of talk the same way as you, look the same way as you, if, if that's what you're looking for, you have come to the wrong church. Let's just be honest for a minute. Like, we don't have some country club that unites us all. We don't have some school that all of our kids go to. We don't have some political ideology that we all rally around. There, there's not a unifying thread that flows through all of us here. The only thing that has brought this group of people together, that could bring this group of people together, is Jesus Christ alone. We are united together in the gospel, and that means whoever it is that is here, those are the people that God has placed in our lives to lean upon, to depend upon. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no Lone Ranger mission accomplished. It is enmeshed. It is needing one another. It is praying for one another. It is encouraging one another. It is reminding each other of the gospel again and again and again so that we all get excited together about going out and reaching outsiders. This calling, this calling to work together uh, combats the temptation to be an isolated church. We're not so prideful to think that we don't need other churches. Guys, other churches even the ones here, even the ones right down the street, they're not our competition. Look at, look, at, look at how many seats are in here. How many people live in Horry County? There's no way. We're, they're not our competition. We work together. We pray for them. We love them. We support them. We encourage them. And thank God, many of them do the same thing for us. And the same thing as individuals. We're not so prideful to think that we can do it on our own. No, we, we need one another. So in order to be good stewards of the gospel, God calls us to work together. And then finally, this morning, finally, we are called to fulfill our ministry. We are called to fulfill our ministry. Uh, we're going to start here with verse 17, and then um, in a minute, in conclusion, we'll look at verse 18, which would be a fitting conclusion for the letter. But for now, just verse 17 says, And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Uh, here, here's a simple way to think about ministry. Uh, ministry is serving God by serving others. Serving God by serving others. And all of us, all of us, every single one of us, will have moments in our life where we're tempted to step back from ministry. We'll have these moments and these reasons. Maybe it's weariness. Maybe it's just complacency. Maybe it's distraction. Maybe it's a lack of good leadership. But for all of us, there will be reasons that we will want to step back from serving God by serving others. And so all of us at times will need, just like this guy Archippus, we will need somebody to look us in the face and say, fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Fulfill your ministry. We all will need that at some point. Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul surprises us with something when he, when he talks about ministry. This is Ephesians 4. This is Paul, same guy, writing in another, another letter, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Paul writes, And he gave 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which is just another word for pastors and teachers. Now, what would you expect them to say? I, I, if it was me, I, you're sort of reading through Ephesians. You, you, Paul starts listing off these different offices of the church, and you think what he's going to say is he's given these apostles, these prophets, these teachers, these shepherds to do the ministry. That's what you expect. Like, these are the people that are called by God to do the ministry. But that's not what Paul says. He says, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the great surprise, that the actual ministry force of Christianity are the everyday average members of the church. That the job of pastors, the job of leaders is actually not to do most of the ministry. The job of pastors is to equip the saints, to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. What a pleasant surprise. That when God saves us to himself, when God saves us, when he rescues us, when the gospel comes down into our life and he wins us back to himself, he not only brings us into relationship with himself, but he also wins us so that we might jump on board with his purposes. That he lays out these good, good works in advance that we might get to walk in them. That when God brings us in and makes us citizens of his kingdom, he, he also gives us a job in his kingdom. He gives us a purpose in his kingdom. We're no longer stuck doing the same old mundane, everyday things that everybody does that will mean nothing in eternity. No, God calls us up into something greater, something grander, something that will last forever. Here's what this combats. This combats what's called consumer Christianity. Consumer Christianity. It's the idea that we kind of look at the church, we look at religion, and we look at Christianity as if it's kind of a marketplace. We go in, get what works for us, kind of, kind of get our needs met, find, find what we like, what we don't, and then leave. And we do that time after time after time after time. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not here to bash you up. Uh, a lot of us churches have done a really bad job because we actually bought into that narrative. We started operating our ministries and our churches as if this was a marketplace, so church leadership, we're just as complicit in this. But this, this consumer Christianity, Paul, Paul doesn't even know what that is. What, is. what does that mean? No, no. to be a Christian is to have a ministry. To be a Christian is to serve God by serving others. There, there, there's, there, there's no possibility, there's no reality in which we're saved into the kingdom without a, a purpose in the kingdom. And so this call combats consumer Christianity. And when you close your eyes and think about the church, like if you were kind of trying to imagine a picture that painted what, what the church is in some, maybe an artistic form or just kind of an abstract idea, you know, I don't, I don't know what the picture in your head would be. But author Michael Horton, I think he's, I think he's very helpful in his book, Ordinary. Well, he gives us a few options to consider. So here's a few options of different ways that people conceive of the church. He says, for some people, the tendency is to view the kingdom of Christ as a cosmic ladder or tower leading from the lowest strata to the hierarchy at the top. And he, he mentions later the Pope, this idea that there's some sort of like hierarchy where someone's at the top and they're super special or something like this. He says others have tended to see the kingdom more as a monastery, a community of true saints called out from the world and a worldly church. Still others tend sometimes to see the kingdom as a school. So in other words, the, the purpose of the church is to teach people stuff, you know, it's, it's for us to come and learn. He says, while many, while many in the United States lean more towards seeing it as a market. But God, he says, sees his kingdom as a garden. Hmm. A garden. Think about that. A garden is this interesting place. It is this ecosystem where there are different components that share this unique interdependent life. That some things in the garden 
need certain things that others provide, and then when they receive what they need, they give things off that other things in the garden need. That there is this beautiful interdependence in the ecosystem of a garden that, that should reflect the life of a church. That is, every single one of us hear Jesus looking at us and saying, fulfill your ministry. We realize that if we say yes, if we embed ourselves, if we enmesh ourselves into the church, as we fulfill our ministry, that benefits someone else. And then it helps them fulfill their ministry. And as they fulfill their ministry, it benefits us. This is why the other image that Paul gives for the church is that of a body. We have a bunch of different parts and a bunch of different parts bring different things to the table. And as we all fulfill our ministry, we all grow together. There's no consumer Christianity here. And so it's a good chance for us to ask ourselves, have I just become a consumer in God's church? Have I just become someone who receives or am I someone who's living in the garden, living in the ecosystem where yes, I'm getting my needs met. Yes, I'm depending upon others, but at the same time, there's others who I'm allowing to depend upon me. That I'm giving what God has given me. I'm using my gifts. I'm using, maybe it's just even my prayer that I'm devoted to, to pour back into the life of the church as a healthy, functioning garden. You know, I was thinking about this week. I was like, man, I was so thankful to God that most of the people in this church are not consumers only. Praise God. I look out. I see. I know you. I see you. Thank God. So many of you. I know you are not stuck in consumer Christianity. I am so thankful. Praise God. But I would bet there are a few of us here this morning, a few of us who need again for Jesus to look us in the face and say, fulfill your ministry. Don't check out. Don't retire. Don't pull away. I'm with you. I've given you this task. I gave you these gifts. I put you here for this purpose. Fulfill your ministry. Lean in, step in, press in. In conclusion this morning, uh, we come to verse 18, which is a fitting end, seeing as the last verse of the letter itself. Paul writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my chains, Paul says. What does that stir? What was that meant to mean to them? Well, certainly remembering his chains would remind them to pray, right? And, 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 and not those typical things that we all tend to want to pray for. You know, remember Paul says, not, 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 my, not that I would get out, not that I'd be healthy. Pray for the word to go out. That even though I'm in chains, as he says in uh, 2 Corinthians, even though I'm in chains, the word of God is not in chains. So pray that the word would go out. Pray that the church would grow up. And to, re- to be reminded of his chains would be a living example. This is what faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit looks like. Not the general sort of, sort of everyday faithfulness that's there when, when there's a kickback, that's there when it's convenient for me, but this kind of supernatural God-given faithfulness that allows somebody to rot in prison and believe on everything. That even though I'm in prison for the sake of Jesus, God will not waste my life. And so just like they were called to remember his chains, we are called to remember his chains too. Guys, giving ourselves to the the mission of Jesus seems nuts sometimes. Giving ourselves for the mission of Jesus might mean that we lose our life in this world. 
But here's God's promise to us that if we commit to the mission of Jesus, God won't waste our life. That if we go running after whatever we think is important in this life, if we go running after whatever values we hold high in this life, we'll waste it. But if we embrace the mission of Jesus, if we embrace this awesome stewardship of the gospel, God won't waste our lives. And so that means this this prayerful, faithful, grateful work that we are pulling together as a church to run after what we're doing, what we're about here. Guys, this is eternal. This will last forever. And that's amazing. Let's pray. Lord, I genuinely am so thankful for a group of people that you've brought here who are only here because they depend upon Jesus, they love Jesus, and they want their lives to be used for the sake of the name of Jesus. God, I'm so thankful. Lord, I confess, even in my own heart, I know Sometimes I have the best of intentions. Sometimes I I feel so willing. Sometimes I I want to to make myself so available. But my weakness gets in the way. Distractions get in the way. My sin gets in the way. And so, God, we're just praying this morning that you would pour out your power, work in our hearts, that we might be good stewards. Lord, we want to receive this gospel that you've given us with just a sense of awe and reverence. God, knowing that this is the the privilege of a lifetime to be called your ambassadors, to be given a ministry by you, to have this opportunity where there's so many people who need Jesus and God, you call us, us, Lord, to deliver your message. God, we know now that we are so dependent upon you. These are things that we've talked about this morning that we cannot do in our own power. We can't even pray steadfastly without your power, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit. We need you to work in us. God, we long for the word to go out and we long for the church to grow up. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.